On Easter weekend in the Premier League, where Jesus couldn't resurrect Arsenal after a brilliant Liverpool comeback, both sides left with a point apiece. And Roy Hodgson's Crystal Palace are playing like they have a point to prove since his return to the club. They hammered Leeds 5-1 in a game where everything seemed to go their way. Unlike Brighton, of course, who were left absolutely fuming after VAR handed Spurs a win they didn't deserve at all. And speaking of being handed things that you don't deserve, Frank Lampard is back in the Chelsea dugout, but they still lost. Anyway, my name is Mike. Welcome to the Football Diary Podcast. I'm joined by Dave on the pod today and we've got a lot of action to talk about as we've just mentioned but first of all we're going to jump straight in and talk about that thrilling game Dave between Liverpool and Arsenal which felt like a defeat for Arsenal really didn't it and Liverpool could have won it many times over in that second half but what the hell happened after Arsenal actually took a 2-0 lead in that game it looked like cruise control for a while didn't it but Liverpool came back in the second half in a way I haven't seen Liverpool play for ages so what do you think happened between the two teams and what did Liverpool do at half-time to suddenly go, right, we need to step up a gear here? Because it was a bit of a game of two halves, wasn't it, to not sound too cliche? Yeah, I think particularly how Liverpool started the game was quite surprising. I think a lot of people expected them to come out, out of the blocks quite quickly, which um, they just struggled for the, much of the first half. It, it wasn't really until about after 30, 35 minutes they actually started to kind of really get a grip of the game and started to win second balls. Um, but for much of the first half, much of the first half, Arsenal looked very comfortable. And that was quite surprising in itself because there's obviously so so few teams obviously come to Anfield and really play and toy with Liverpool in the way that they did. They control possession. They were they, they it was too easy for them. Um, and it wasn't until around it was a couple of chances they had before Obviously, Salah scored that goal, which was obviously well, very well worked. Um, that it seemed like Liverpool woke up. Um, they did actually start to win duels in midfield. They started to win the ball higher up the field and force Arsenal into mistakes. And that's really where the first goal came from. Um, really worked, really well worked goal. Um, I thought mm. Salah was brilliant in the first half, um, and he obviously. They managed to force a mistake in midfield, won the ball higher up, and it was a it was a really well worked goal. Um, but yeah, Arsenal it's it's a bit strange really how they they lost control of the game. It seemed almost that they couldn't control the game they the way they would have liked to. Um, we didn't see enough fire feel from Modigard and Partey. I felt as though Liverpool just it was too easy for them to win the game to win the ball, especially in the second half. And a lot of Liverpool's chances came from turnovers. Um, yeah. And I think we can say, obviously, the, the one thing I will say about Arsenal, even though they they definitely missed Saliba in this game, he was a big miss for them. Um, they actually held things together quite well. There was a few chances that Liverpool had. Liverpool will feel aggrieved. They will feel that they should have won the game. And if Salah had scored yeah. that penalty early on in the second half, they could have easily gone on and you know got a couple of more goals because the momentum was with them at that point in time. But it almost seemed as though as Liverpool weren't going to score. It it was kind of coasting for a while and cruising, um, and Arsenal were just were shutting them out and. It took a little bit of magic, really, for them to uh, 
for them to obviously score that equaliser. But it was what a game it was. Like, it was just end to end. That was that's by far one of the best games this season. Yeah, I think it kind of shows you what Liverpool can't do as well. And it kind of highlights how bad a season they're having, really. And it's a point that no team really needed or wanted because they needed a win. I think Liverpool's hopes of Champions League are gone now, um, if there was ever any doubt about that. But Arsenal will feel worse because City, the game is looming on the horizon against them, isn't it? And assuming City win their game in hand before that encounter... It's set up now for a team that's incredibly informed, like Manchester City, to to seize the initiative, isn't it? Now and Arsenal had to stay ahead, didn't they, of the of that game really? And they've lost the the only kind of advantage or edge they had. So it makes the title race down to the wire. And Arsenal have to be perfect now. They have to be perfect. And I think that might be that extra bit of pressure that they're not used to in City are. And that worries me for them, doesn't it, you? That, that that's their chance now gone to go into that City game actually feeling like there's a cushion there. Yeah, I think the the initiative that they've obviously got to carry, and I think they've got two games to play before this, and City have only got one. So they will have played one more game, I think, than City when they do play City. So there will be you know, a margin ahead, assuming they win both of those games. I think they've got one against West Ham and they've got one against Southampton, which you'd say they should be winning probably both of those games. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. It's it's almost as though that can be a game on the back of that, where you're looking at not just the result, but the way that you're playing and thinking. Actually, now we we need to kind of, you know, we need to actually turn it around and actually really turn it on now because this is the time of the season when you know the running is is pivotal really for both teams, especially um, Arsenal. We've not really got the experience. Of, it's been yeah. so long since they've been in this position that they've obviously got a couple of players who've got a bit of know-how in Zinchenko and Jesus who will be able to bring that sort of know-how and experience to that team. But they are really very inexperienced in terms of what's going on now in comparison to what City are. So you can see why people might be thinking, you know, the tide's turning. Um and City are actually, all of a sudden, probably playing the best football they have done all season at the very end. Um, yeah. So it is, yeah. It's hard to see them losing, isn't it? I think that's why the game between the two teams now feels heavily in City's favour because Arsenal have now got a level playing field or they should, you'd expect them to have a level playing field on points apart from this game, assuming neither team slips up. So it, it feels like, you know, they had the initiative, they've lost it. And I think in this game, that was... That kind of scenario in a nutshell, they had the game in, in their hands, didn't they? And there was a lot of talk about them losing a bit of focus when Salah scored and, you know, they were cruising a bit too much, a bit too comfortable. And a few people have said that the, the flashpoint between Granite Xhaka and Trent Alexander-Arnold kind of galvanised the Anfield crowd a little bit and got them spurred on to kind of get back into the game. But Arsenal can't afford to let teams do that, you know, can they? I mean, if they do face up against City and there's a flashpoint, they can't make that knock them mentally, can they? So it does raise questions for me about their mentality going in in a title race. It's been a long time since they've been in this position. Um, But City are irresistible too. A quick word on them. They they won again, didn't they? Ireland scored a fantastic acrobatic goal. Jack Grealish is coming into the form of his career, it feels like. So they look ominous as well, don't they? Yeah, and all of a sudden they're winning games with, you know, relative uh, comfort, really. 
Um, they're actually, obviously, there's been a few games of late where they've actually won it by far margins. Like you look at the Newcastle game where they obviously, it was kind of on a knife edge and Newcastle could have easily got their game. They were just doing enough, but all of a sudden they're looking a bit more ruthless and more clinical in their nature. And yeah, in this game, obviously look at Holland and just how well he's playing. It's just ridiculous now, isn't it? It's, you're expecting him to yeah. score one or two goals every single game. And if he doesn't, then, you know, it's, you're quite surprised by it. But just the, especially a second goal, you know. I, I know I've seen a lot of people saying he shinned it a little bit. Which <laughs> um, No, I thought the technique was brilliant. I think, to be honest, the ball into him wasn't perfect. He had to kind of improvise to make the goal I think happen. it's about the timing, though, isn't um, it? It's not, it's not necessarily yeah. the way he's finished it, but... Timing that finish and getting the connection that he did in within that sort of technique that he managed to sort of display is like sublime. And it's just when it goes in, it's like that. It's just extra special, isn't it? Um, but yeah, another mention for Jack Grealish. He's obviously had another very good game. He's just yeah. just coming into form at the right time um, over the last few games. And City, they need it. Let's be honest. Um, it sounds crazy to me. It sounds crazy to say, but I don't feel as though City are the same team. I think I agree with what Pep said a few times. I don't think they're the same team as what they were um, have been the last two or three years. I think they've 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 been better, uh, much better in games, more consistent. Um, so for them to be doing as well as they are and to be still right at the top, it sounds ridiculous to say, even with all the good players that they do have. Um, you, you can only praise them really for their consistency. Yeah, I think so. And to be honest, it's well they were against Southampton in this game, so you can't read too much into the the result. But um, yeah, impressive nonetheless. And speaking about Southampton as well, the bottom of the table, they're kind of further adrift now. Um, there's a few teams trying to make a breakaway. Somehow West Ham are, are still picking up points and still pushing pulling away, despite getting thrashed by Newcastle in the week. But one team that looks particularly like they're gaining some kind of momentum is Crystal Palace as well. So since Roy Hodgson came back to the club, it raised a few eyebrows. And I think I was one of the critics that said this was a backward step and um, I can't see how it's going to work out for them. But when you think about this short-term fix, which is exactly what it is, you've got a manager that's only been at the club very recently, who last time he was there kind of had a lot less to work with, didn't he? And the players he's got at his disposal now are like a tier above what he's used to. You know, Eze played brilliantly. Elise is fantastic, isn't he, on the ball? Going forward in the counter, they've been great. Even Odson Edouard scored. So there's, there's players in coming in, into the attacking play that weren't really involved in Palace's play as much in, the, in previous kind of games, really. But Hodgson's galvanised them in a way that I didn't expect, really. I don't think many did. Um, beating Leeds 5-1, that's a statement in a relegation fight, isn't it? Definitely, and considering you're one nil down as well, um, to then go and yeah. <laughs> score those goals in the second half was, you know, I have, you know, Leeds did not cover themselves in glory in that second half. They, it was an absolute disaster for them. But the way that Palace played, and particularly Elise, I thought was outstanding. Obviously, to get those three assists, um, like he did, and the way he played. And you mentioned there about Roy Hodgson and some being surprised. I think one thing you do have to look at is the way he's, his man management has always um, been widely known as you know quite a particular strength of his. And particularly with that young squad, 
and with his experience for him to come in and sort of guide them we know he's done a very good job with Wilf Sahar in the past and the way he's sort of been able to develop him so in a way he's probably the perfect sort of guy to come in and guide them really in this you know end of season sort of battle uh, to stay up to it's and it seems like a lot of the clubs down the bottom there are just looking for a short-term solution because there is no clear fix um especially when you're looking at bringing the manager in if you're looking long term you you're probably going to offer them a three or four year contract and that's a big risk especially when you're you know battling to stay up so in a way it's probably the ideal situation and let's be honest it couldn't really be going any better for them at the minute no, well, the last game, when they, his first game in charge, they played against Leicester, didn't they, and got an important win there as well. And it's been said that they've got the easiest run-in of the teams in the bottom half of the table, but I don't think that counts for anything, really, at the minute, because there's so little between them. And the fact that against Leicester, they had over 30 shots, uh, 30 attempts at goal, is, first of all, remarkable in any game, but in the first his first game back, when he's trying to turn around a team that's been struggling a team that hadn't had a shot on target for how many games in a row previously under Patrick Vieira, some kind of unwanted record. It was such a statement from him to say, you know, everyone's got these assumptions about me as a coach. And that's just not the way it is. Um, He is adaptable, isn't he? He could see that he's got a talented team at his disposal. And it reminded me a bit of when he used to be manager of the Fulham team that got to was it the UEFA Cup mm. final back yeah. in the day. Um, so was it and again, they played brilliant football. The Vigna again, was then. it? I, th- I think it was severe. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah, It's always severe, isn't it? But I mean, he hasn't got a reputation for playing negative football. If you go back far enough, it's only when he's, he's kind of generally managing teams with poor quality players. But this Palace team is quite talented. And uh, I think he's proved that he can get a song out of a team if they're yeah. willing. And they seem really good to fight and play for him. Um, as well, you mentioned Edward. I'm quite surprised he's not been playing uh, as as much as, you know, as he should be. He's always been a big talent, even obviously when he was at Celtic. He was, yeah. um, and he's a, he's a threat. And that's something that they have actually lacked, obviously, in games this season, just being able to score goals. So it was good to see him get on the score sheet as well. Yeah. I think another game I'm going to call your attention to as well in terms of, you know, scoring important goals and scoring good goals was Brighton against Tottenham because I think every goal that went in there was really impressive. Uh, Caro Mitoma had another great game. Um, Kane's goal was brilliant. Son's goal was fantastic as well. But Brighton will feel pretty aggrieved, won't they, with the result because they should have got something out of this game. The AR, Dave... This, as you've mentioned this to us, like privately, we've said this is the worst performance from a referee you've seen um, ever. Almost, it, it was horrendous, wasn't it? I think not just the amount of decisions that were wrong, but the amount of high-profile errors um, that were made in this game that were, you know, they clearly influenced the result um, and. It's just bizarre, really, to see this this many decisions being made. Obviously, wrong decisions, and it's just so frustrating. Not even as a, we're not we're not Brighton fans, but you put yourself in their situation, and it is truly just. Do you know what I mean? It really does crush your your morale and just you the good feeling that you do have when you want to, you obviously watch a football game you just want to that it to be yeah. refereed fairly refereed correctly as or as well as it can be and it was 
everything. It was an absolute disaster of um, the refereeing performance, especially by the referee and then VAR as well. I don't know what's how many yeah. how many times do we have to talk about VAR and how many times are we do we speak about it in a season and always for the wrong always oh. for the wrong reasons, never for the right reason. Well, that's the reason. That's what we'll discuss in a minute after we've sort of gone through the decisions that went against Brighton because I think it's important we kind of say whether it's even worth having anymore if it's not getting it right even half the time. You know, why not just stick to referees' judgment then initially and, and you know, have a moan about that being wrong instead of actually going to a screen and checking if it's wrong and then still getting it wrong. I think that's just embarrassing for the Premier League, isn't it? But the decisions that went against Brighton... I mean, the first one that comes to mind is I think Matoma's goal that was disallowed um, for handling the ball. What's your, your thoughts well, it's on that? A, it's called a handball, and then it's obviously looked at again. And for me, I don't think you can clearly say that's handball. I don't think there's a there's a conclusion there as clear evidence to say he's actually touched his hand. So how can you rule the goal out? I don't understand. Well, it's apparently meant to have touched his upper arm, but. I mean, this is that that ridiculous thing where they talk about the t-shirt line as well. If it's above the t-shirt line, then it's okay. It's the shoulder. But if it's below, then it's handball. But I mean, what's he meant to do in that situation? It's not like he was reaching out to control it or anything like that. It just, in fact, it didn't even touch his arm. I don't think did it. No. It looked to me like it just hit his. his well, that's torso. what I mean. I don't. I don't think there was any clear sort of footage or you know evidence to suggest that it did. Even if it did, I think the I think the rules need to be changed on that. Um, in certain instances, yeah. obviously, it happened again with um, Alexis McAllister as well, didn't it? That was obviously another one, um, which was obviously just going and following the rules. Which, fair enough, you can't do anything about that. Um, but yeah, this one was was a bad decision, um, and it, unfortunately, it didn't get any better from there. <laughs> no, well, then there's the the penalty that wasn't given as well, like. Matoma gets fouled in the box and like he clearly has his ankle like trodden on. There's no angle that doesn't show that looking like a foul. Why would that not be given? Like it didn't even stop play to look at it, did he? Just play on. Mad. No, and I don't the only re only thing I can I can think of why it wasn't is probably the player's reaction. Even saying that, if you're gonna get stamped on, then you're obviously gonna feel a, a certain degree of pain. So you 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 fully in your right to obviously, you know show how in pain you are and I just yeah I don't even know what they were thinking in this in this instance when they looked at every angle that kind of showed you you looked at it and you slowed it down you could see his his foot was trodden on and for whatever reason they didn't give it I I just have no explanation for that I feel sorry for Brighton because they played really well and some of the chances they were creating were brilliant I mean Spurs had a couple of good goals too but I would argue that the game would be different again if those decisions had gone Brighton's way. Like Tottenham wouldn't have the advantage and the momentum that they they had going into the game. There's that. Uh, and another another decision was was uh, Stellini being sent off when he didn't even get involved in the touchline thing that was going on, and he was like, "Well, well I something didn't say to do with was it something to do with failing to control their staff or something like that?" So they sent the manager off because they didn't oh, know, who to, know who to punish on that regard. I just I felt for him in that situation as well because you know he's is a voice on the touchline and he's keeping his mouth shut when everything's going on around him just to keep out of trouble and uh, still get sent off. It just looked ridiculous. The, but uh, yeah, VAR's a, a bit of a strange one at the minute, isn't it? Because it's not going away. But I think the question fans want to know is: Is it making the game better for officials? 
No, clearly not. Decisions are actually harder. It's putting more pressure on them as well. And I think fans like to see it go right and and make decisions in the key moments for right for the right reasons. But the amount of negative that it creates still, for example, whether it takes the drama away at key moments, like it does when a goal is scored, you can't really celebrate. I think you'd rather have the decisions that go against you because of a referee's decision rather than having to go through the whole technological process and it still be wrong, wouldn't you? Yeah. And the thing is, there's not even a real argument for VAR at the minute because it's not consistently providing you know, the, the assurance and overturning decisions that are the wrong decisions in games. Referees aren't using it properly or refusing to go to VAR when they are obviously being spoken to on the mic because they're afraid of making the wrong decisions. At the end of the day, if you're a referee and you've come into that job and you're actually scared of making decisions, then you're in the wrong job at the end of the day because... Yeah, you know the the flat that you're going to receive from you know obviously from players from fans, it's it's within the job it's within job within the job role. So the fact that the VAR isn't actually doing what it's been brought in for, for me, there's just yeah. not an argument to have it in the minute. If it's not being used properly or not being used at the right moments, then what's it here for? Because. Yeah. All, too many questions and not enough answers, really. The, thing that, the, the only problem. thing that he seems to be looking at, more often than not, is offsides. I'm going to move on from that subject now anyway, because you could go on and on talking about it, couldn't you? So um, there's been no sackings in the Premier League this week, uh, which is rare <laughs> and a nice treat. But there's been some managerial appointments we're going to talk about first. So Frank Lampard's return to Chelsea uh, as caretaker manager is the first one. Took me by surprise, I'll be honest. Um, I've heard that James Corden's had a say in the appointment because he's friends with Todd Bowley. If so, then that's just ridiculous, isn't it? That there's that much influence at the club from somebody that knows nothing about football. And he's a West Ham fan as well. Um, So that doesn't make any sense. But Frank Lampard's been given a a second chance in the Chelsea dugout. Obviously, he wants to to finish his tenure this time around on a high. Um, The only high you can possibly get is beating Real Madrid in the Champions League, surely, because the league's gone. He's lost another game in his first game against Wolves. And it felt like same old Chelsea in some ways, didn't it? So... Why the hell is Frank Lampard back in the Chelsea dugout, Dave? What you've just said there about James Corden, that, that is just <sighs> ridiculous. I mean, the way the club's, it seems like it's been run and some of the decisions that are being made, you wouldn't actually rule it out, would you? It's all, no, it's I was going to say at this point, I it's, have to it's say, a, it's, it's, not, it's not verified, I don't think. So, But if it is true, you wouldn't yeah, be surprised. Ironically, that, obviously, James Corden, who's obviously a comedian, a bad comedian at that and some things, which is, again, which is kind of what's going on at Chelsea. It's a bad comedy. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, for me, it's... I think this game as well against Wolves, they were possibly one of the worst opponents that could have been. Wolves are just a very resolute well-structured team, you know, it's under, under the, mm. obviously, guidance now of Lopetegui, who's a very experienced manager. I thought this game was all, all wrong for them. They've got a very good midfield, Wolves. Um, the same again, really, is it's just the, the lack of threat from Chelsea and the lack of structure. Um, it, some of the decisions that are being made, obviously, for team selection... It's just so strange. And can you imagine being a player there at the minute? How confused you must be because of all the all oh, the kind yeah. of, especially the different all the managers you've had at the point. You've got Lampard coming in as well. It must be so difficult as well. Obviously, a legend of the club coming in, and you 
some of them obviously already played underneath him as well. So it's kind of deja vu in a way. Um, a manager that obviously failed um, ultimately. Yeah. So it's the direction that they're going in. It's it's just crazy. I don't know when what the end game is now. It's worrying as well because they're not going to qualify for the Champions League. So for at least one season, they're going to be missing that revenue stream. And it doesn't look like they'll even get into Europe at all at this rate. So financially, I think... I mean, I've seen... Their next coach, who whoever that may be, is are they going to want to sort of take over a Chelsea team in this much disarray? Yes, they've got a talented team of players. A massive squad to trim down, though. That's the big issue. And no European football. So it's a difficult job, isn't it? Yeah, and the thing for me is, it's like you say, there's a big pool of talent in there to, to work with, but it's quite daunting in a way because there's that many players in there. You're walking into that situation, you kind of need a little bit of an experienced head who's going to come in, knows exactly what he wants to do with what players and actually trim the squad down and get all of those players to actually follow in the right direction and do obviously what he wants them to do. Obviously, all the noise that came out about Potter and uh, it sounded like it was quite dis- it was disrespected in uh, you know in a, in a way that's just not professional at all. Um, it kind of actually mm. shows you a lot of the character of some of those players that are at Chelsea that just probably shouldn't be there. Um, so it is worrying. It's it's a real worrying time, and like you mentioned, you don't know how bad it's going to get. It's almost like no. from what I've seen, a lot of Chelsea fans now they've kind of zoned out and their expectations are gone they've kind of the anger's almost gone as well because they've accepted how bad they've mm. been um the thing is though if you're going to go from graham potter who was accused of not being good enough to manage you know big personalities high profile players um that was held against him quite a lot to frank lampard who's already had a stab at it has got no top level experience other than that small unsuccessful stint with chelsea um and you know nearly took Everton to the brink of relegation pretty much. He's not really any better than Graham Potter. So I think the only way I can kind of see this as being anything positive is that maybe it's a club legend coming in, could make people realise what playing for Chelsea is all about. You know, he's won the Champions League with them. So maybe they're putting everything on the fact that he might be able to galvanise them for two games against Real Madrid. But other than that, I can't see why staying with Potter would have been any worse than having Frank Lampard at the helm. Where's the continuity? Where's the the expectation? I feel like the Real Madrid game is probably going to be quite embarrassing for them at this rate. I think the only explanation really for me is that there's no manager who is saying, yeah, I want to come in now and I want to start now immediately. Um, obviously, I know obviously Nagelsmann's been spoken to and there's rumours that Enrique's obviously spoken to the mm-hmm. club as well. Um, but if you're looking at the situation as it is now, would you really want to walk into that environment and the atmosphere that is probably so toxic, it's going to be difficult yeah. to manage whoever goes in. Um, yeah. And let's be honest, it's not going to be a good season. What The chances of winning the Champions League, the way they're playing at the moment, let alone obviously the rest of the teams that are still in there, some very, very good teams who are far better than Chelsea. Chelsea are probably the worst team left in the competition um, yeah, in terms probably, of form. Yeah then you've got to say it's unrealistic, um, the chances of them winning the competition. And I I just think they've accepted that now. I think they can see that this is a bit of a write-off. 
which is sad, really. Uh, but a lot of teams in similar positions, lower than them in the table, have, have took the plunge as well and decided to go for a caretaker or an interim option. Uh, and it sounds like Leicester City are, are close to confirming that as well, aren't they? With uh, Dean Smith um, coming to the King Power Stadium to try and sort of save Leicester's season at a really difficult point for them. They've just lost to, to Bournemouth. They are second bottom now and almost looking like they're falling away a bit as well. Dean Smith's bringing with him Craig Shakespeare, obviously, who knows Leicester quite well. He he was there during their, their best period and he's actually managed the club as well. And John Terry as well in the Leicester dugout, it looks like. So an interesting trio of, of people to lead Leicester maybe out of trouble. We'll see. What do you make of that appointment, David? Does that kind of make sense on a, a caretaker basis? I think so. And again, it, it leads on to obviously what we we're talking about and saying that clubs don't really want to commit long term to a manager who, you know, they're, they're unsure if it's the right appointment fully for the long term obviously whether they will be in the Premier League their their status is kind of you know up in the air um, particularly at the moment they're probably I think they're probably the worst team in terms of form um, over the last few games um, they are really struggling and it's I know we've kind of been undecided haven't we really over the last yeah. few weeks on Leicester and whether they will have enough and we thought that they'll have enough talent to stay up um, and you have to look at it and I look at their, their, their starting eleven now and it doesn't surprise me to see where the position they're in. They've got Daniel Amate at centre-back who's yeah. not really a centre-back, not really good enough for the Premier League in my opinion. And they're leaking goals left, right and centre and they're not beating. They're, you know, they've looked at the last couple of games they've had and you'd be saying they probably should be the favourites on paper against both of those teams, against Palace and, and Bournemouth. So, what is going on there? I just I just don't know. It doesn't look like they've got the right characters in there to galvanise the rest of the team. But So you look at Dean Smith coming in. He's obviously got good experience with Norwich. And he's got, obviously, Craig, Craig Shakespeare's coming in. He's got, obviously, a lot of know-how about the club. He knows the club inside out. I think they'll just be hoping to get a reaction. They need a reaction from somewhere. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, first and foremost. And they just need a bit of character about them because they look like they've given up to me. Yeah. I think they need to become difficult to beat, really difficult to beat. I think Dean Smith's got a chance for organising the defence enough to do that. Um, And I think if they can do that, then they've got a good chance of getting some goals as well, if they can go forward on the break quite well. Because I think you've said before, they're quite a good pressing team, aren't they? And the front line can actually create something. It's just making sure that defence stays watertight. That's the challenge. So if Dean Smith can achieve that and actually coach them to be a better defensive unit, whoever's at the back, whether that's Amate or, well, or not. It'll be interesting to see how he sets up with it with the defence because obviously at Norwich, he's, at, he's worked with wing-backs before, hasn't he? Um, yeah. So I'll be I'll be fascinated to see actually who he starts with. Obviously, Siuntu was pulled out of the firing, firing line, wasn't he? He's not been around for a while. Um, for what, what went on there with Rodgers and him was... Uh, strange one so whether he comes back in will be interesting to see yeah interesting times in the Premier League at the top and the bottom but I'm going to move away from the Premier League Dave to finish the pod because not long ago today as we recorded this Wrexham beat Notts County in their top of the table National League encounter but only one team can get promoted it it was an incredibly tight game to go into but Wrexham won 3-2 in a game that pretty much had everything didn't it what a performance from (laughs) Wrexham 
Oh, ridiculous game in in ways because you just didn't. It was it was twisting and turning all throughout the game, and oh, breathless really. Like the this encounter had absolutely everything. I think in terms of the two teams as well, you've got to feel sorry for 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 Notts County and the way that they played this game. Like you mentioned, there's only one automatic promotion spot as well which is really harsh when you look at how well the two teams have done throughout the season it's going to be a real shame for who doesn't obviously finish top of the table but oh you've got I thought County played quite well in this game I thought they kept yeah. possession quite well they they managed to sort of like dictate tempo I think one thing that did stand out for me as well and the some of the defending was was bad from both teams which actually yeah. worked in favour of both sides of the game, really in terms of kind of the entertainment factor. Um, but you could see, obviously, at a higher level, it might it might struggle. Obviously, they might struggle when they step up, obviously, into the next leave. But it, the entertainment value it offered was just unreal. And some of the goals, I thought, I thought Paul Mullen had an, yeah. an excellent game. I thought he looked brilliant. Um, John, Bo- John Bostop for County. Former football manager, Wonder Kid legend, as many will remember, <laughs> had a really good game as well. Scored a brilliant free kick. Um, yeah, deep into added time at half time as well at a crucial moment. It wasn't yeah, it was a great goal. It's, you, you just wondered, especially because um, earlier in the week when uh, Wrexham got beat by Halifax, with, which obviously not many people would have seen coming, you did wonder then whether it would be their day. But the the atmosphere at, the, at that ground was unbelievable and you wouldn't have just watching that as well obviously being televised um you wouldn't have thought that'd be a lower league game just it had absolutely everything some some of the actual um quality of the play i thought um the way wrexham particularly had that sort of intensity they won the ball high up the pitch they did look the more threatening. They did create more chances. Um, and I think that's what um, paid off for them in the end is that some of the um, transitions that they did make, and particularly the Mendy goal, I thought was really good bit of player from, from Paul Mullin. actually showed um, the extra side that he's got to his game. He's not just obviously a, a scorer of goals, but he's a creator as well. I thought the pullback for, for Mendy's goal was sublime and, like congratulations to them. I, I, I just think what yeah. they're doing, obviously at the moment, they obviously the exposure that they're getting, thanks to the owners as well, um, is it's only good for the game, and especially if obviously um, football, you know, lower down, down the pyramid, it's it's only a good thing for me. Well, it's not over yet, obviously. There's still like four or five games to play. So, you know, Wrexham could still lose points uh, and open up a, a chance for not counting. That's, that's the thing, though, isn't it? It's, it seems to be like anybody can take points from anyone. It seems like it's... So- well, I don't know. They're so far ahead, aren't they, the two teams, that I'm not sure that anyone's going to drop points at this stage. And that raises the question whether the National League should have more teams going up because it's so brutal for a team to do mm. so well and have quality that's so much better than the chasing pack. Then they still will miss out on promotion. Oh, it's a, yeah, it's pressure though as well, Mike. The pressure yeah. now that, that it's, you know, these last few games, it's fine margins, really. Um but the quality in that league as well has improved over the recent recent years, doesn't it? And uh, it's a tough league to get out of. But the fact that Wrexham can can recall Ben Foster out of his <laughs> retirement, who was in the Premier League like not long ago, months ago, and he pulls off a magnificent performance, right? And 
I mean, how can a national league team get an England international who's still only retired quite recently and played in the, at a high level to come and play for them? It's incredible. I think, obviously, he's had what we thought he was retired, didn't we? Um, mm. It's a fairy tale ending for him, for his career, especially, obviously, coming back to the club pretty much where it all started for him. Um, a lot of people obviously don't know that. And the way that that game ended, the, the save was absolutely out of this world. You can see why it was a world... It was, yeah. He was seen as a world-class prospect, you know, at United. Um and obviously went up, went and played at the very top for a, a, a long time. And you can see why he can still do it at, at this level. And he could easily play still in the championship for me. It's just, yeah, I, I just think, think so. it says a lot about his character coming back to Wrexham and obviously giving it his all. I think it's going to be a real fairy tale finish to his career and not just for him, but for Wrexham this season. A lot of um, rival clubs are obviously quite jealous of the success Wrexham have had this season, especially because... They look at the, the high profile of, of having, you know, Hollywood owners. And there's a bit of resentment there, isn't there? But on a standalone basis, Wrexham have played some fantastic football, haven't they? And they've made the right signings to make that team work. Because, I mean, only 12 months ago, they were still dropping some really poor points and, you know, still playing pretty badly in some matches. But now it's a team and a manager as well. Let's let's not forget, this is a really high-profile manager that's playing well below where he should be, uh, managing well below where he should be. They're, they're performing brilliantly and they would deserve to be in the Football League if and when they eventually get there. Yeah, and I think what you mentioned there, you're right about the, I suppose, some of the resentment and there is a bit of jealousy about it. But you, you can't blame some fans, really. If you look at some, especially at that level, the kind of like the the instability that some clubs have that some of these clubs are on the verge of kind of you know going into extinction so to speak um and so you you can only say it's you know it's very understandable for me i, th- I just think that the feel good factor that that club has around it at the minute it feels like it's it's a train that can't be stopped the, the way that it, the, they're going and the way that they have this energy about them that is just so, you just can't help but be involved in it. And even as a fan, not even as Wrexham yeah. fans, it's just it's just great to see, um, even for neutrals and obviously fans, United fans like ourselves, just to look down and see that happening at a club where they've had a lot of uncertainty in the past. It's just amazing for me. Absolutely. And what a positive note to end the podcast on as well, talking about something that's not a relegation battle or a manager getting sacked. So that's refreshing. (laughs) Um, However, next time we talk, Dave, uh, next week, it might be all all change again because every game feels like it's high pressure in the Premier League at the moment for every team, pretty much. There's always something at stake. So it's going to be exciting. And there's European football in between that as well. So we'll no doubt have plenty to talk about. But thank you for your time, Dave. Um, It's been a good one. Speak to you soon. See you again. 